Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on mummies, tiki, and horror. And I am Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be discussing Gao Tanabe's manga adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's seminal story, At the Mountains of Madness, published by Dark Horse last year. The text was translated by Zach Davison. The two-volume set was nominated for the Eisner Award for Best Adaptation from Another Medium. We'll be discussing Volume 1 for the episode's first segment, and followed by Volume 2 in the show's uh, second half. We will finish the episode by announcing our September guests for the Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast, as well as materials we'll be discussing on the next episodes of HP Lovecast and HP Lovecast Presents Fragments. Gyao Tanabe is a Japanese artist from Tokyo, Japan, who has become well-known for his literary adaptations. In 2002, he adapted Maxim Gorky's 26 Men and a Girl, which received an honorable mention in the fourth annual Interbrain Entertainment Awards. He also adapted Anton Chekhov's The House with the Mezzanine and Sade, written by Garin Toshiaya, who also wrote Old Boy. In 2004, Tanabe turned to H.P. Lovecraft's Cosmic Horror Stories to adapt, commencing a 15-year relationship. Tanabe first adapted Lovecraft's 1921 short story, The Outsider. Over the years, Tanabe has also adapted The Color Out of Space and The Haunter of the Dark, as well as The Hound and other stories, which includes The Hound, The Temple, and The Nameless City. First published in 2016 and 2017 by Katie Kawawa Corporation, Tanabe continued his visual exploration of Lovecraft by adapting the 1931 stories At the Mountains of Madness. This title, as well as The Hound, were translated by Zach Davison and published by Dark Horse Comics. The rest of the creative team included Steve Dutro on Letters and Touch-Ups and editor Carl Gustav Horn. Both titles were nominated for Eisner Awards. According to Anime News Network Post last year, Tanabe announced he would be launching The Call of Cthulhu in monthly, bean, monthly comic Bean. Also noted in the news article, Tanabe had just finished The Shadow Out of Time. Western audiences, myself included, hope that Dark Horse will pick up these two manga adaptations from Tanabe in the near future as well. At the Mountains of Madness Plot H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness follows the account of Miskatonic University professor William Dyer as he relates his strange events of his polar expedition to Antarctica that occurred in the early 1930s. The expedition group had traveled to Antarctica in hopes of discovering proof that at one time the icy continent had a tropical climate. After finding unusual rocks that hinted at ancient life, Professor Lake, one of the uh, members of Dyer's team, takes a separate team further towards uh, the South Pole by plane. He and his party find evidence that is nothing from this world. When Dyer loses contact with Lake, he and a small group of men go looking for the party. Dyer finds a horrific scene of death and is puzzled by the mystery of uh, alien specimens in the closing pages of the first volume. Volume 2 picks up with Dyer and a graduate student named Danforth taking off in an airplane to find Gedney, the only person missing from Lake's team. Their flight path leads them to a massive abandoned city of stone buildings featuring mysterious architecture not found before in any human civilization. Dyer and Danforth find mural, murals in one of the buildings that collaborate with the mythology recorded in the Necronomicon, especially Elder Things, Shagoths, the Migo, and Spawn of Cthulhu. The men are fascinated by these findings, but also have a sense of foreboding. Uh, Dyer and Danforth 
find not only their missing colleague, but so much more, such as giant penguins and shagoths. The duo flee the city, with Danforth witnessing something so horrific he goes insane. Dyer sets about to dissuade future expeditions to Antarctica. Alright, so Michelle, before we uh, kind of start diving into specifics of Volumes 1 and 2, I guess the general question I ask is uh, your overall thoughts of uh, this manga adaptation of Mountains of Madness. Um, well, right from the start I'll say that I really uh, enjoyed this adaptation. I think that it uh, Tanabe remains uh, very faithful to the source material while taking uh, some li- liberties with regards to how it's structured, um, the pacing. However, it really does remain within the spirit of the of Lovecraft stories. Um, I also think that based on the liberties he takes, I think it actually improves on the original story um, through the pacing, through the character study and tension, um, as well as, of course, the visuals of the medium. Um, I also think that Tanabe is the, the perfect artist uh, to render Lovecraft stories in a manga um, format. I think that he really does uh, understand the material. He seems to be very passionate about the source material, the stories, um, that it's, it's a kind of a passion project to me, I, th- I think. And I think he's done a, a wonderful job exploring at the Mountains of Madness the fact that it's such a seminal work. Um, so I think that uh, having this in a manga format is definitely conducive for um, people that might not be familiar with the story, that this would be a good entry point. I think my only um, negative with regards uh, to Volume 1 and Volume 2, and that is the format. Um, When I originally read these stories, I read them in an electronic form, and I really uh, could engage more completely with the the material, and that's because I was able to look into those details. I do think the manga format in particular, I think these are like a 5x7 book, um, is just a little bit too small to really showcase Tanabe's artwork in a really complete light. I think that if these had been a large format, like an 8.5 by 11 um, or limited editions, I think that people would have picked this up and would have definitely engaged even more closely with the, with the material. Uh, those are my thoughts. Nick, what about you? I don't think Del Toro's cinematic adaptation of Mountains of Madness is ever, ever going to happen. Um, instead, I think uh, this uh, manga adaptation is going to be probably the closest facsimile we'll have to a nice visual uh, incarnation of Lovecraft's uh, work. Um, we actually talked about this, uh, the non-manga version, this the original text in a prior podcast episode, and I remember... I believe our general consensus that it was a pretty good story that had a couple issues, like all Lovecraft stories, though. Uh, this one, probably no different. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, in fact, it probably improves upon uh, Lovecraft's, you know, knack, uh, well, not knack, uh, you know, he's guilty of telling and not showing, while the manga version is definitely the opposite. There's a lot more showing going on, and that's probably perhaps because it's very visual, Um that we could see what's truly going on and not relying on some of Lovecraft's lackluster descriptions. So, like, uh, what I mean that by that, for example, uh, in Volume 1 of the manga, its counterpart in Lovecraft's uh, version, you know, it's almost all radio reports and just dire recalling things. But in the manga version, it's actually turned into actual action. You can kind of see what's going on, especially in regards to Professor Lake and his team going off and exploring. You don't get that point of view in Lovecraft's story. I mean, and that makes sense. The point of view is from Dyer. But I think uh, the manga version definitely improves on its storytelling by switching off point of view. Uh, it's like for some examples in the, the textual version, there's just one throwaway sentence saying, you know, Professor Lake, you know, you know, they were trying to cross a, 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 a chasm or whatever, and they lost a sled and a couple dogs. Boom, one sentence and done. While in the manga version, that's actually a couple panels of them trying to negotiate this, and, and unfortunately it shows, you know, doggies getting hurt. I don't like that part. But I do like that it actually underscores what's really going on there. It actually, I think, raises the stakes. It really shows, you know, the... Um, 
volatileness of down there being in Antarctica. And this is all even before they come across the Lovecraftian horrors. Uh, some of the other uh, things that you know the manga shows rather than tells is it really takes advantage of all the mirages. And again, in the original text, they're like, you know, we're flying around and we see mirage. Ooh, that's kind of you know cool. But you know, in the the manga version, you know those. They're not integral, but they feel more integral. There's some really sweeping, um, you know, two-page spreads of these mirages that sometimes depict mountains, sometimes depict cities. And it adds to this, you know, uh, eerie quality of being down there that you don't get from the normal text. Yeah, I would agree with that, Nick. I Going back to your central point of showing versus telling... Um, I think what really helps with this manga is the fact that we do get the insight to the characters. Uh, the description or the, the scene where Lake uh, loses a sled and the dogs is a moment in the story where Tanabe explores the fact that Lake is kind of become irrational in his pursuit for this discovery with regards to the organisms and the the that are portrayed in the rocks, the fact that these are an otherworldly geological find that sends him on an irrational uh, journey, and we see that is a point in the story where we get to uh, we get insight into that character that we don't get in Lovecraft's story. Well, in the manga version. What, what really comes through are the characters' personalities. Uh, in a lot of Lovecraft writings, characters, I mean, yeah, they're smart, they're scholars, you know, they, they happen upon, you know, otherworldly cosmic things, but when it comes to actually getting into personalities, they're pretty flat, they're pretty uh, not described very well at all. But with the visual medium here, the personalities really come out. Like, uh, for example, uh, with Professor Lake, the, the first scene you even see him in, you know he's a bad guy. Well, he's, I should take that. He's not a bad guy. He's just really driven and really roguish, very determined. You could tell he's going to be a hindrance. He's got, in a classic anime slash manga style, his, his eyes are narrow and furrowed. He looks very intense, and he, he, he looks like you know a villain from Castlevania series of uh, games. Um, and, and, and all these are all qualities that come out later. You know, he's roguish. He goes off and does his own things. And he ultimately pays the price for that. But just visually looking at him, you get that feeling. Uh, the same thing goes with uh, Professor Dyer. Um, you know, he has a beard. He looks kind of, you know, a stoic and intense. But on the other hand, he's a far cry from, say, McReady from John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, he doesn't quite have the uh, the leadership capability that that character has, but you do see that in his, uh, his uh, depiction of this. He's a bit more nonplussed. He's a bit more uh, soft, if that's a, a right way to put it, rather than some other characters are a bit more rugged looking. Uh, like you, Nick, I also picked up on the visual or the the physical uh, traits of the characters, particularly with regards to Lake, because, like you said, the first time we see him is on the ship in um, the harbor in in probably Boston, and uh, when you you know you see him straight on, he's very slender, angular. His eyebrows are constantly furrowed. He has very light-colored eyes, and he just immediately screams, I'm a villain. Um, and, and, you know, we know right away that he's going to be our antagonist through at least the first part of the story. One of the things that I also liked being able to experience this story in manga format is that I felt that I could more personally engage with the characters. By seeing their physicality on the page, I was able to immediately be kind of transformed into the story and feel at once part of the group. Um, the source material, there's a lot of scientific uh, information with, within the text, it, going back to the main theme of showing and not telling. Lovecraft is so great about telling but not so well about showing. And Tanaby really takes the flavor of that science and is able to incorporate that into the dialogue of the characters, which I think works very well to keep us engaged as readers 
while also being entertained by the visual. I actually wanted to go back uh, to one of the other visuals that you mentioned, Nick, and that is the mirages. Um, we, we get mirages, I think, twice in Volume 1. The first time is the mirage of the horizon, and we see the mountains below and kind of mirrored above. And that is, like, so cool in a manga format. But even more so was the second mirage where we see the Black City in a mirage format where I think he, he actually gave a term to that, like a... Um, I can't find that in my notes right at the moment. Uh, but I thought that was just a great foreshadowing of things to come. What did you think about that? I think the mirages, you know, they add that, ear, like I said earlier, a little bit of eeriness quality to it. That's not something that we experience a lot, you know, day to day. You know, we watch a lot of cartoons and there's like the desert mirages. Oh, there's a giant pool of water over there. And that's usually what you think. You don't think of, you know, the sky mirroring uh, the ground and how surreal that is. Uh, earlier, you know, we were talking about how the physical size of the manga is a little bit on the small side. And I think it's the traditional size of what a manga should be. But I do agree that, you know, looking at this a bit bigger would be very, very beneficial because not just the scenes of mirages, but there's these other kind of landscaping scenes that are really terrific. There's um, this uh, uh, sequence of pages where it starts kind of zoomed in and each page afterwards it like zooms out. You know, it starts out narrowed in, then a mountain range, then it shows Antarctica on Earth. And it just shows this kind of how, you know, isolated uh, these folks are. Um, it's hard to kind of... Uh, you know, portray, you know, isolation uh, so well. I mean, we see it in a lot of movies and stuff, especially like in John Carpenter's A Thing and in space horror uh, books, which can be found in Michelle's book of the same name. Nice plug, thank you. <laughs> but, but you know, you have these, I, I could almost see, if, like, again, I bring up the Del Toro reference earlier that the sequence of basically zooming out from Antarctica to kind of a, an outer space shot, I could see that as like a, a great shot within a, uh, a film, uh, just showing just, just how, how alone they are, how, uh, you know, not just alone, but they're, they're in another world. That's basically what it comes down to. For all purposes, this is about as outer space of cosmic horror as Lovecraft gets. They're, for all purposes, they're on another planet at this point. We just call it Antarctica. Well, and I like your point about uh, the zooming out, the fact that in... You know, whereas in film we usually have an establishing shot that is from far away and comes into comes into the 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 scene that we're meant to to focus in on, I could definitely see this manga being basically the storyboards for a Guillermo del Toro movie. Or at the very least, put it in a uh, an animated uh, comic book format because I know that's kind of popular nowadays as well. Um, I, it would be neat to see some uh, movement going on the pages, and there's actually quite a bit of movement uh, on the pages, you know, static movement, you know, as best as possible. Not quite like an Ameri com American comics with whooshes and stuff like that, but, you know, there's lots of scenes of, like, planes flying around, and it's both a, a curse and a in a positive, you know, there's, again, many sequences of a plane flying around against the, the Antarctic wasteland, and both, it one, again, it heightens the isolation that's going on, but two, again, size of the, the pocket-sized version of this manga, it's, you can get really lost in the details, you actually have to really scrutinize the page, like, oh, that's what's really going on, it's a plane flying between the rocks, a plane flying in the wind, um, there's so many sequences in this uh, book where it'll show like ships or campsites and they're just covered in, you know, windswept icicles. Everything looks so ravaged and, you know, it really, at, 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 one, it's visually cool looking, but two, it does challenge a reader that you do have to kind of linger on the pages sometimes to figure out, you know, what, where each object ends and begins. Uh, you'll see that kind of later when the cities kind of, you know, merge into the mountains and for the most part, that's a good thing. Towards the end, it maybe becomes a bad thing because then the action is picked up. You know, characters are running around trying to escape things, but you kind of do get lost a little bit in the details. And I think, again, bigger format would allow some of those details to pop and make it a bit more decipherable. I think that that was probably my biggest 
my biggest negative about this is the is the format and the fact that that some of the detail was lost in the storytelling um, and the fact that you did it was sometimes hard to scrutinize those details because it was just too small on the page um, that wasn't the case though like I mentioned earlier I had an electronic copy of, of both volumes and so I was actually able to um, kind of like expand the page and really look at the detail marvel at Tanabe's skill as an artist and be able to I think follow the story just a little bit better um, at times where there was that action and it was hard to kind of keep straight all the characters that being said I do want to say that Tanabe uh, does a does a really nice job with distinguishing the different characters Sometimes that's really hard for an artist to be able to properly convey a character from one panel to the next at Especially different angles. Especially in a story like this where they're all wearing the same things. They're all wearing fur parkas and stuff. So they're all kind of immediately not distinguishable between mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, and you know, to be able to do that and then turn around and do these sweeping, engaging, expansive uh, desolate uh, locale uh, drawings is just incredible. I mean, I, th I think honestly that's where Tanabe excels probably to, is superiorly versus other things, but the fact that he is so well-rounded as an artist and really is a contemporary perfection for retelling these stories in a manga format. I really... I would go so far as to place him on the same plane as Bernie Wrightson and his work with Frankenstein and also uh, more 19th and 20, early 20th century artists and that's Gustave Dory and his work with Dante's uh, Inferno. If that gives you any idea of this artist's capability and really where he is, I would say he's a contemporary master and deservedly uh, has earned that that uh, label. Well, when we start talking about Volume 2, I want to circle around on that artist aspect because, yeah, classical art of the Apocalypse and Dante's Inferno becomes a huge part of Volume 2. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, kind of conclude our wrapping up of Volume 1, I guess, uh, you know, the kind of, the big question I have to ask is, is it scary? I do. Um... I wanted to bring up a couple of uh, a couple of scenes where I think uh, that tension really comes to the forefront, and that being during Lake's dissection uh, scene. I felt like the 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 pacing was excellent, the the tension of the dogs barking and growling, then the inclusion of wisp of vase, vaporous odors, the the potential illusion or reality of the uh, I'm gonna get it wrong. I think these are elder ones. The the star. Yeah. Okay. The elder one that's on the specimen ta table, kind of waking up, uh, becoming like slyly involved in the dissection, was just so creepy, and I think that that really really worked well. What did you think of that scene? I didn't think he woke up. I thought he was still dead. But regardless. Uh, what it reminded me of is John Carpenter's The Thing, that mm -hmm. dissection scene. In fact, I would almost say that uh, Tanabe, you know, I know he's staying pretty true to the text of Mountains of Madness, but I can't help but feeling uh, that John Carpenter's film plays a, a big part in, in interpreting a lot of uh, what's going on here. The dogs barking, the dissection scene. You know, he's like, I can't cut into it, so let me find a, another cavity going through. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be the scene in John Carpenter's The Thing where he defibrillates the guy and a big old mouth opens up and goes chomp, 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 chomp on the guy's arms. I mean, that didn't quite happen there, but it's the same kind of uh, suspenseful, you know, scene going on there. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, the additional scenes of like Lake and his team exploring the caves and finding kind of, you know, old uh, flora and fauna and all that stuff, you know, that's kind of just only alluded to in Lovecraft's version. This one, it's greatly expanded on. And, you know, it's, and again, it's kind of creepy. They're seeing stuff in a place that should not be there. And so, you know, they're in, 
you know, awe of this, and we as readers are also in awe of, hey, this is kind of cool. It adds kind of an adventurous element to it as well. So it's both scary adventure. Yeah, I have uh, actually two more points uh, before we kind of wrap up our discussion on the first volume. The first one um, that I have, Nick, is the liberties that uh, Tannenby takes with regards to the opening scene of volume one. The fact that he does kind of this flash forward moment, do you think that that helps create a better opening to the original text? What were your thoughts when when you read that? Um, I don't know. It, just, it seems like a very, something that you can only really do in a horror movie. Again, going back to a Del Toro type thing, you don't really have too many flash forwards in books that I know of. It's mostly, a, you know, something you see in the cinema. And to me, that just seems like it's kind of aping a cinematic quality. Mm-hmm. Do you think it works, though, in, um, in the manga format? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't not not work. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you left it out, I think the story would have been pretty much the same, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, there to add a little bit of extra tension. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I also wanted to point out that uh, just like with Lovecraft, uh, we get that, that trope of the narrator being uh, unreliable uh, in the first volume Lake is definitely becomes unreliable given his kind of obsessive behavior with his ge- geological pursuits um, as he uh, demands to take a small group of men and continue to research further south to the South Pole um, and I think that really works well because in the first volume, uh, Dyer has to take that rational uh, stance with regards to Lake and uh, becomes that voice of reason. And yet in volume two, we have Dyer takes that position that Lake held in the first volume. So it's an interesting juxtaposition between the two characters and the role they play within this story. I think that's actually a really cool point. Uh, if anything, I actually think uh, uh, Lake actually becomes a bit more reliable of a narrator in the manga version, just because we actually get a point of view of him. In the uh, the novel, since everything is being filtered through Dyer, it could be, you know, twisted, uh, turned, censored. In fact, they even make overt mentions of they are actively censoring, you know, the report outs through their, you know, uh, radio and wireless communications and anything. If anything, uh, I think the manga version actually uh, it, it doesn't make uh, Lake a less unreliable narrator. It makes him more reliable, but at the same time, it makes him more, uh, like you were saying a bit earlier, irrational. In fact, his reliableness of a, as a narrator underscores his irrationalness that shows him, you know, making decisions he shouldn't be making, you know, such as, yeah, bring all those corpses out here. Yeah, we're going to dissect them. Yeah, we're going to explore that cave. Yeah, let's, you know, endanger half the expedition by doing this wild goose chase here. I think that's a great observation, Nick, and I think you, you've uh, articulated that well because I did sense that with Lake. I, I had actually forgotten that in the original story we don't really get Lake's perspective but I think that, that that you're spot on with the fact that in the manga we do get Lake's perspective um, and are able to juxtaposition that with uh, Dyer's uh, position in the story because I think is in the original story all we have is Dyer's it, uh, narrative, right? Correct. All The entire Lovecraft text is Dyer's perspective of everything as he's trying to set out to make a document to dissuade other people from exploring Antarctica. And just by saying that, that means he's going to, you know, uh, support his position by omission, fabrication, and censorship. So just by default, the original text is unreliable narrator. Sure, yeah, he's a professor. Yeah, he's smart, although... I think when we talk about volume two, we're going to challenge that a little bit. But the manga version, even though it still has that, you know, he still ends the book by saying, you know, I'm going to dissuade, you know, future expeditions there. Just by sure perspective of showing Lake, of showing Dyer, of showing the other characters doing stuff, at least we as readers, we actually have the truth of it all. I do want to make one last point, and then, <laughs> then we can move on to volume two. And that is that um, I think it bears uh, stating the fact that as a manga um, 
this is all in black and white illustrations, which I think underscore the, the time constraint of the storytelling, which is uh, to the 1930s. Um, I think that's all I have, Nick. Uh, nothing more from, from you then? Okay. Um, so let's take a short break and listen to a little bit of Zena Schreck's Ill Omens before returning to discuss Volume 2. Welcome back to the second half of our HP Lovecast podcast. Uh, we'll be looking at volume two of uh, Tanabe's At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, part one focuses, focused on Dyer and his expedition on Antarctica, uh, Lake and his uh, team getting kind of slaughtered by some elder ones. Uh, part two of the manga uh, takes place mostly in the giant megaopolis as Dyer and Danforth explore around trying to find the missing Gedney, who is one of the members of Lake's team. And they come across a uh, mural, which they use to decipher kind of the history of the Elder Ones. And so, I guess my uh, my first question would be, uh, since this this uh, volume is very city-focused, Michelle, as our <laughs> resident expert of city symphonies, especially of cities depicted in the interbellum years, uh, I, I'm actually really curious what you think about uh, the cities in this uh, volume. Wow. That... Do we have, like, two hours (laughs) to talk about city symphony films and the portrayal of cities in in the 1930s? I think to start off, uh, to give a little bit of context about the city symphonies and how they relate to this portrayal, I think it's important to, to talk about what their what the goal was with regards to them. And they were meant to be a documentary style of film to basically, that seeks to capture a cross section of society, be it uh, class, art, architecture, politics, basically a day in the life of that city. Um, Vertov did it very well with his man with a movie camera, as well as uh, Walter Ruttman, Berlin, city of a of a great city, symphony of a great city. Um, I think that those are are great examples, and I would actually go as far as saying I think that if Tanabe was looking at those as an example for what he did in Volume Two, I think he does a comparable, relatable uh, treatment of this ancient, cosmic, otherworldly city. Uh, It depicts the society kind of, whereas he goes back to the very beginning, which could be related to a day in the life of the development of the city. He does that with his depiction. He starts with its origin. He talks about the elder ones, the development of the class of the Shoggoths, and then the disruption, the chaos of the spawn of Cthulhu and then the Migos. So I think when we look at it in that kind of, of con- context, yes, I think Tanabe does a very nice job with the portrayal of this city because he does take a cross-section and, and tells the story. We don't have to have minute-by-minute understanding of the various stages of this evolving society he takes the best of each one and portrays it in the second volume i think he he also uh, as a result he embraces that fragmented nature of the city symphony films of the 30s and does a nice job creating a contemporary version uh, of that He gives that montage, that kind of avant-garde, and as I mentioned before, that kind of fragmented nature that are these films, and I would say Tanabe's portrayal of this cosmic society as a whole. 
However, I would also encourage our listeners to go and take a look at uh, both those films, Man with a Movie Camera and Berlin Symphony of a Great City. Um, they're great examples, and I think they would be uh, great to juxtapose to Tanabe's uh, portrayal of this cosmic city. See, I think that would actually be a, a good hypothetical question to ask for this. Um, throughout both Volume 1 and Volume 2, uh, Dyer and other folks, they try to make sense of what's going on by referring to the Necronomicon. Uh, now, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's it's a Lovecraft story, so of course everything's eventually going to tie into a Necronomicon and all this other stuff. But really, if you think about it, that's kind of a silly thing to do. You're all the way in Antarctica. Oh, here's this ancient city. Well, there just happens to be a worm-ridden book back at my university that just perfectly explains this. And that, that just seems kind of far-fetched let's just be honest but again within the lovecraft universe that works but let's let's reverse that you know because you know what a lot of people do is they make sense of their surroundings by doing pop culture references so what if you know they're trying to make sense of their surroundings that instead of referencing the necronomicon that the characters would be referencing other city symphonies because you know those all came out well before this expedition this expedition was in 1930 but, you know, like, Murnau Sunrise was in 27, Man of Movie Camera was 1929, uh, uh, Berlin's uh, Symphony of a Great City was 1927. I'm wondering how the dialogue or the interpretation of what they're witnessing would be had they, you know, made more pop culture references instead. Well, I think to a certain extent there's an effort to make some of the pop culture references, if there are any, in the cosmic uh, civilization, particularly because... Uh, in the narrative, they make reference to art, and I think that's probably one of the best forms of pop culture that we can look at. Uh, it's very brief, um, and you know, I think if there had been more of that, then maybe we could have a better understanding. I think my my big problem with this scene that while it's it's beautiful and allows us to see an interpretation of the various monsters and kind of their hierarchy of engagement. Um, that can be kind of elusive when you're reading Lovecraft. And that is, I'm going to call it, leap of cosmic faith. The fact that how could a geologist infer an entire evolution of this cosmic race through the Necronomicon um, and then through these murals? Um, Because he's not an expert, and as we've learned uh, through academic study, and I'm, I'm I'm going to refer to the Egyptologists as they've continue to study ancient Egypt, the fact that you really do need an interdisciplinary study of a civilization. If you look back at, uh, back to Egyptologists and their study of just the hieroglyphs over the last 200 years and how that study has really changed over those 200 years, I mean, I guess, to be fair, with this version of interpretation, it's their first time. And so that would be on the cusp of if we were to equate it to the study of hieroglyphs when they first, when it first became known to Western, the Western civilization and their effort to understand it. But I do still, still stand by the fact that that is quite a leap of faith for a geologist to, to understand uh, these murals through the interpretation of one book that was written by a person that, um, you know, who knows what his perspective is. And I mean, we have to look at other Lovecraft stories to get a even more of an understanding of where this person was coming from. Yeah, Mountains of Madness I've always kind of viewed as a band-aid that attempts to canicalize yeah, we're going to go with that word. Go All the it. other <laughs> Lovecraft stories out there. You know, there's so many allusions to, you know, Call of Cthulhu, Whispers in the Darkness, uh, uh, even Pikmin's model. Um, so about, so this this is probably the, the I'm going to say the controversial, the, yeah, the cosmic leap of faith, the kind of the, the weird thing going on in Volume 2, and not just Volume 2. I mean, this is, you know... A lot of Lovecraft's writings in particular in the original text is, yeah, this whole scene where Dyer is basically, you know, within a matter of, we're going to say maybe an hour or two, because they're not there that long, basically just looks at some alien murals and says, 
bam! This is their civilization. This is everything that goes on. They, they came from the cosmos, they settled here in the ocean, then they built cities, and then... Um, you know, other folks came and tried to invade him. The the Cthulhu spawned, and the Migos, and their Shoggoths came in. You know, and it, it's it's all very fascinating. But, so, I don't... I'm just going to throw this out there. So, this is going to be a pretty long-winded thing. So, brace yourselves. I don't necessarily agree with this. But I think it's a fascinating interpretation of this part of Mountains of Madness. And, so a couple months ago, I was actually talking to a colleague of Michelle's and mine. His name's uh, Howard David Ingham, and he's the uh, he's a uh, he, he studies a lot of folk horror, and he's the author of uh, "We Don't Go Back." And he actually has a very negative view of this uh, sequence. And, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what he and I talked about, but uh, he brings up uh, an occult writer from uh, back in the day named James Churchward. And Churchward was an occult writer kind of in the Eric von Dynekin vein of things who proposed the existence of a lost continent in the Pacific called the Continent of Mu. M-U. I'm going to say Mu. It might be Mu. We'll go Mu because I want to say the word Mu, which is also a successor of the fictitious Lemuria uh, continent, which has popped up in Lovecraft's writings before. And according to Churchward, you know, he talked to some, uh, you know, mystic priests that no one else talked to. And he read some ancient tablets that were in the Nakao language that only he could decipher. And basically he put out there, there is this continent in the Pacific called the Continent of Mew. And it was this advanced civilization of millions of people and it's no longer there anymore. And of course it's all BS, you know, there's nothing out there. Um, but, you know, his, his proposition had a, you know, a big in- impact on pulp writers, you know, especially Lovecraft who wrote Through the Gates of the Silver Key and Out of Aeons, which makes reference to Church Ward and, and some other Lovecraft's writings make, you know, reference to, you know, Lemuria and other things. I mean, you know, Call of Cthulhu, the whole city of Ryla is, you know, under the water in the Pacific and might as well have been the continent of Mew. Well, anyway, this is all a roundabout way of saying that for Howard uh, Dyer... The, the main character of Mountains of Madness is basically a churchward-like character. When he's deciphering the history of the Elder Ones in the city, he's basically bullshitting it like churchward would. He actually can't read this crap, let alone, you know, read it in a mere, you know, one or two hours. So he's drawing on, you know, prior, you know, scientists that other Lovecraft characters have done before. So... You know, when he's reading these murals and stuff, he's like, oh, yeah, alien invasion. They came from, you know, the cosmos. Basically, recap what we just talked about. Um, so he's making it up. Or, you know, he's just, you know, looking at the picture, says, oh, that looks pretty. That That's an alien invasion right there. Um, he's using fake science. And and with this per, per, uh, per Howard here, this creates sort of a, a, a dissonance, you know. Obviously, in the story, there's freaking aliens in front of these characters. There's Shoggoths, there's Elder Ones, but Dyer's attempts to explain that is he's BSing it. Uh, per per uh, Howard's uh, kind of end result here is uh, it, it, it actually makes Dyer more of a foolish hero because he doesn't know what's going on. You know, you typically look to a Lovecraft character of who's done all this great studying, he's read all these books, you know. She, it's particularly like the case of Charles Dexter Ward where, you know, he's able to piece together everything and cast the spell at the end to, you know, basically kill Dexter Ward. But here you have, you know, a character who who isn't who isn't that. Um because he's BSing this. He's trying to explain what can't be explained and and in a weird sort of way, that's scarier. So I guess the question is, what's scarier? There's a giant blobby monster in front of you, or there's a giant blobby monster in front of you, but he got there through this very textual analysis of years of war and famine and civilization and cities being built up. That's very textbook, Jewel. It's not quite, you know, uh, scary. So it's kind of, it subverts it a little bit. Now, now I, I don't... 100% 100% agree with that because I actually like my Lovecraft spoon fed to me. I like the whole uh, mythology that it loosely all, you know, creates. And that's what Mountains of Madness attempts to do. It ties, tries to kind of tie in all the Arkham stuff and all the cosmic stuff and, and so on and so forth. I kind of like that. Same reason why I like the, the Star Wars expanded universe, even though it was a, a hot steaming mess at times. It was just, a, it felt like a big thing to be a part of. And this kind of, um, you know, 
pulverizes all that. That's not the right adjective, but I'm going to go with it anyway. But I think it's a great way to look at this. You have a scientist. He's a freaking geologist, and as you were saying, Michelle, you know, he's a geologist. He can't read this stuff, let alone in, you know, an hour or two. Egyptologists are still trying to decipher hieroglyphics, and they're humans like us. And that's only from thousands of years ago. This is aliens writing millions of years ago, and just like that, he can decipher it. So, I don't 100% agree with Howard's assessment, because again, I like my heroes, and I like my things, but I'm not saying he's not wrong either, because th there's, there's something, there's some asshattery going on here. Well, and what I would add to that is an interesting point, the fact that Dyer, it comes out right towards the end, that Dyer hasn't read through the entire Necronomicon. The, the character that has is Danforth, and Danforth is the one who is permanently damaged, and it is up to um, Dyer to basically make sure that he's got, you know, health care, that he's properly taken care of. Uh, some days Danforth has a very uh, lucid uh, commentary of his life. At other times, he's just totally out of it and is in another world. And so I think that for Danford, I mean, because essentially they both, they both experience the same thing. But it's Danford who is actually the one permanently scarred, and he is the one that is completely insane by the end of this and not dire, which kind of lends to the, the bullshit factor. Well, they, they almost experience the same thing. There's one thing that Danforth experiences that Dyer doesn't, and it's as they're fleeing the city in the airplane, Danforth turns around and he sees something so horrible that he becomes insane. Uh, the Lovecraft text doesn't tell us what it is, and neither does the manga either. Um, you know, it just shows a shot of the airplane fleeing and there's a giant uh, mountain behind it. So... And that's kind of one of those things is, is, are we kind of robbed of an ending here? Because we've already seen so much, not just in this manga, but any other readers of Lovecraft. At, at this point, especially decades upon decades later, we all know what a Cthulhu looks like. We all know what a Shoggoth looks like. We all know what an Elder One looks like. Although, we'll have to ask that question in a little bit. How does Tanabe's interpretations of those kind of compare? But, you know, at this point in the game for... Uh, Mountains of Madness to have a character that looks back and sees something so horrible that he goes insane, but we're, we don't see it in the original text, we don't see it in the manga. Are we kind of robbed of an ending? I, I almost feel like that uh, Tanabe has already gone the extra mile to depict things that haven't really been pictured before. He might as well have owned it up at this point. You know what? Lovecraft even show this. Uh, you know what? It's time for me to do something truly, truly new. I'm actually going to draw what Danforth saw. Because uh, we don't know what he saw. I mean, if it, if he saw a, Cthulhu, a spawn of Cthulhu, that's a nothing. We saw those pages earlier. Um, what what could possibly he what could have possibly he have seen? I'm sorry, that came out jumbled. I mean, again, decades later, we all pretty much know the bestiary of all the different elder gods and old ones and monsters or whatnot. But here's this one that we don't know what it is. We don't know where it sits in the the hierarchy of other gods or everything. We have no idea what it is. And I think it's a, a missed opportunity in a weird sort of way. Well, I think that it's Tanabe keeping in uh, cadence with Lovecraft to not show everything, to leave something there to the imagination. All I could, could figure is because, spoiler alert, but I mean, we see who Shagoth is, Shagoth is. Um, and I can't imagine that seeing the full body of Shagoth is going to be the defining moment of Danforth's uh, insanity. So it must be something more. I think the only thing that we haven't seen and that hasn't been de depicted in the mural and in that uh, chapters, I think it's 16 through 18, uh, we're going to say is the city symphony of this <laughs> volume, um, the only thing that I don't that we don't see are the gods, like the the great old ones. Is that what what Danforth ultimately sees is some god that we have not seen in the cosmic uh, hierarchy? And 
And that's the only thing I can think of because, again, at this point in all of Lovecraft's writing and successor writers, we've seen an Azathoth, we've seen a Nilathrotep, we've seen a Zoth Amog, we've seen every other kind of weird critter that people have come up with. So, what could this have been? So, I, I get it, it's true to Lovecraft at this point to not show what Danforth saw, but at the same time, I feel like this could have been a nice perhaps controversial, definitely artistic, definitely something new. And again, Tanabe has, has already brought enough new stuff just by drawing out this story. I, I think this could have been something to really hammer it home, I think. Um, I'm actually okay that we didn't see the last thing. I'm, I don't... I, I don't... I don't feel disappointed by the fact that we didn't see what Danforth saw at the very, very end. I think that's Again, that's to be expected. Tanabe does stay faithful to uh, Lovecraft's storytelling, and I think that this was his opportunity. I, I, I think this was the best way for him to go. Um, and I, I still appreciate that there's something left to the imagination. One can only wonder, and I think that's in keeping. Um, a question that I had for you uh, is to ask, and it was something that I was thinking about through reading both of both of these volumes, and that is, I wonder how Lovecraft would have reacted to this manga interpretation of his story. Uh, would he have liked it? Would he have been disappointed? What do you think, Nick? I think Lovecraft hated everything. <laughs> I think that's already been established at this point. I, I, if I recall, he didn't even like movies too much. I think he would appreciate the art in this. Um, I mean, as we all know, that there's artists are a big part of a lot of Lovecraft's writing from Pickman's model, uh, especially. I mean, even in Mountains of Madness, they make lots of references to, um, you know, uh, paintings that are supposed to uh, kind of depict the... Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't make that note here off the top of my head, but, you know, they make a lot of art references in Mountains of Madness, and I think he would appreciate the visuals in this. And in fact, you know, when... It, what we talked about very briefly on volume one, I want to make kind of over here on volume two is there's so many sequences, especially when uh, Dyer is translating the murals and showing um, the rise and fall and rise and fall of this civilization that there's, there's so many scenes of like them, like the, the page is filled with uh, the elder ones just flying about. Sometimes they have lasers. Sometimes they don't. There's backdrops of cities. Sometimes they're fighting Migos. Sometimes they're fighting Shoggoths. Sometimes they're fighting uh, Spawn of Cthulhu's. There, there's these big uh, things. And you'd mentioned earlier about Dante's Inferno. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of apocalyptic paintings out there. Um, for example, uh, John Martin's The Great Day of Wrath from 1850s. Uh, Miguel Cabrera's The Virgin of the Apocalypse from 1760s, and Gustave Doré's illustrations from Dante's Inferno from 1861, um, and a, a whole bunch more just classical uh, scenes of the apocalypse, I feel, are greatly recreated in this story, and very appropriately so, because these are very apocalyptic uh, times that uh, Dyer is translating for us, and, and you know, if as the uh, the story ends ominously that, you know, Dyer's going to try to stop future uh, expeditions to Antarctica, of course, those are obviously going to fail, that this will probably usher in eventual apocalypse for uh, the Earth, you know. Eventually, the stars will be right, and Cthulhu will rise again as we <laughs> have that mantra repeated through us through many of Lovecraft stories. It's a very apocalyptic tale. In fact, I think there's a reason why they call, you know, John Carpenter's uh, The Thing, along with uh, They Live and, um, oh, I don't remember the third movie, Prince of Darkness, the apocalyptic trilogy. These are all foreshadowers of things to come. And I, I think these visuals, in volume two, specifically volume two, uh, harnessing all these old apocalyptic uh, paintings make this a very apocalyptic text. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to bring up with regards to the manga itself and its uh, portrayal of the City Symphony uh, is there is like about, well, I think it's like four pages in Chapter 18 that are in color. What do you think about that inclusion of that small amount of color and does it work 
And what do you think Tanabe was doing with regards to this color? I think there's kind of interesting interludes. I mean, they're only like four pages, maybe six pages, and they both, the only texts they contain are quotations from Mountains of Madness attributed to Lovecraft. And they, you know, they show the Elder Ones kind of in a sea, and they show like the earth and the cosmos. It's just like kind of a really weird break from it all. And perhaps, you know, and this is just my kind of guess here, making just a small sequence in color against all the other black and white, it is jarring. And actually, maybe. Maybe in a weird sort of way, it snaps you out of the fictitiousness of the story and into something a little bit slightly more surreal, meaning, you know, it's both real and surreal at the same time, that, you know, makes it a bit more vivid, a bit more accessible. Uh, what I mean by that is, now, now we're seeing these couple sequences in color, which are more true to what we see in real life, and which is kind of scary because <laughs> the aforementioned apocalyptic text that we were talking about. Um, the other thing I want to bring up since, again, this volume is so city-focused. I mean, it's so important to kind of portray the city. Uh, we talked about it as a, a city symphony. I think one of the things that maybe we're robbed of uh, by not having a Del Toro film is the, the musical quality of this. It, it, in fact, it's alluded to both in the original Lovecraft text and in the manga adaptation that you know, the, the elder ones, you know, they don't have vocal cords, but they have kind of like the ability to make kind of flute and piping sounds. And I believe some of the architecture in the city is described as, you know, having flute-like towers and stuff. And as they're traveling through the airplane, you know, they, they there's many mentions of, you know, the piping of the air and so on and so forth. I almost kind of makes me think of if the civilization was not a very... Uh, uh, oral civilization that, you know, even though they're not talking to each other through, like, our normal communication that maybe through piping and other musical attributes would be a form of communication. And, and that would tie into a greater Lovecraft-type stuff, too. You know, music of Eric Zahn or, you know, the story of Azathoth where, you know, they keep him asleep by piping to him and so on and so forth. I think that's kind of a missed opportunity that you know, not, not 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 the fault of this manga at all, that if we had an actual live-action film, it would be nice to see that interpreted. Um, in regards to the city itself, I think where it's the most successful is when it's the most alien. Um, like pages 28 through 29 on the second volume, the city looks like this really hard-angle spiderweb city. It looks very geometrical and very cool. It captures that cube-like quality that Lovecraft brings up a lot of times. Can I interject yeah. really quickly mm -hmm. that that particular image on 28 and 29 remind, uh, and it's what I was thinking about when I came across this page, was the, um, the desolation of the atomic bomb in... Um, in Hiroshima it, and Nagasaki. It's weird because that image, it shows a city that's both intact but not intact at the same time. Because of the stark black and whiteness and the fact that it is ruins, it does look like a, a post-atomic bomb detonation. But at the same time, it's also an intact city. They go through great care to say that this city has survived millions of years. That Yeah, there's some rounded corners, some erosion, and so on and so forth. It's just weird to have a city that's both alive and dead, ruined and not ruined. Um, there's another pa uh, page 58 it shows like some trees and I was actually disappointed to find out that they're trees I think they would have been cool as structures they're kind of like these weird uh, cylindrical uh, structures with some weird kind of uh, circles in the ground around them I thought they'd be cool structures nope they're just fossilized trees that's kind of a letdown but you know what that's in keeping with uh, that greater theory that they were looking uh, for a tropical climate true uh, but when they explain it away as trees, though, I think it's like, oh, man, we're, we're stepping away from this being an alien city. And finally, on page 76, they come across a tower, and the tower looks really cool, but unlike like the spiderweb angular city I mentioned before, this one actually looks normal. It actually looks like a, a stone tower that you would see like in a, you know, a fantasy book or something. So it's like the least alien of structures they go into. So it's just kind of a, a hodgepodge of really alien stuff versus what looks... I mean, yeah, you're looking at it right now. I mean, it still looks mm -hmm. impressive. If I saw that in real life, I'd go, wow. But at the same time, if you compare that to the bombed out looking pages we all saw earlier, that actually looks normal in a weird sort of way. You know, uh, when I look at that uh, image, it, it makes me think about how we in 
our own societies, how churches, uh, school libraries, government buildings are, are always like a step beyond what you would you would look into our kind of contemporary architecture, kind of the everyday person. To me, this strikes me as this is meant to stand out as a particular institution, um, be it a, a library, a cathedral, or something like that. So to me, this wasn't really out of keeping, but it, it helped to signify that this was something special in their society. And that's where they find the murals and stuff like that. And again, ties to the earlier thing where we're talking about how does he, you know, in an hour or two decipher this ancient civilization. Here you have this megaopolis. This isn't just a city. This is a titanic city in Antarctica. And, you know, five minutes walking into it, they just happen to go to the one building that happens to have their entire civilization mapped out. So again, ties back into Howard David Ingham's kind of theory that it's just bullshit. <laughs> I guess the, the final thing I want to bring up is the Elder Ones and their depiction on this because that's kind of been a big part of both Volume 1 and Volume 2. They're, um, you know, from when Lake's team first encounters them as dead, trying to make sense of them, to Dyer reading the murals and seeing them in action. Uh, you know, these. Uh, this is one of the few critters that, you know, Lovecraft has actually done a sketch of. He describes them as barrel-shaped in his story. I mean, when you look at him in this, does does this feel like a Lovecraft uh, critter? Uh, does it does it feel truly alien? How does it compare to other depictions of the Elder Ones? Because I kind of go back to Peterson's guide to uh, Cthulhu monsters. That's kind of like my canical of what things look like, and those are a bit more to me cartoony. But that kind of keeps in that pulp looking of it. On the other hand, Tanabe's look sleek and I don't want to say sexy, but you know, like like specific the far as far from cartoony as you could get well and again i think that's in keeping with tanabe's uh artistic style the fact that he does take a more uh very realistic very detail oriented without getting into like a photo uh photojournalism but probably about as close to that as you can get and so i'm i'm not actually surprised that the monsters, um, the various creatures in the story look the way that they do. However, that said, I think taking his and actually using his as a complement to the other interpretations, such as Peterson's guide to the creatures uh, in the Cthulhu mythos, actually just kind of help expand and give appreciation to those various, uh, various creatures in Lovecraft's uh, mythology. I did want to take a step back just for a moment uh, and basically uh, compl compliment or echo your sentiments about the auditory aspects of the story and uh, just how a movie would be great to be able to hear an interpretation of those, those sounds um, because they are very important. If we look back to the Jurassic Park um, IP you know, when we get the sound of the particular dinosaur, and I'm forgetting which one it was, how marvelous that was to be able to feel that further connection. Being able to hear something is part of that experience and part of that connection, and we definitely have a disconnect uh, and an opportunity uh, for creating further connection with this mythos. The other example that I would use that, that also plays on that auditory uh, wonder, and that's when, I think it was uh, within the last year or so, when there was a story about the ancient Egyptian, um, and they were able to kind of create a sound from the vocal cords of that Egyptian and be able to hear basically a voice from 3,000 years ago, and how... I mean, it did create some controversy about the technology, but at the same time, wow, did that not just give us some sort of connection with our history as, as human beings? Well, I think on that note, that kind of wraps up our discussion of uh, Volume 2. I think it's very fitting that we end on the auditory note because we're going to segue to another little snippet of Xena Shrek's Ill Omens, which is very appropriate, I think, to get some sort of auditoriness for the story. Uh, uh, Xena's uh, 
song uh, f- uh, very much apes, uh, mimics, you know, 1920s uh, silent film type uh, music. It's very ominous and very uh, desolate, so it sounds perfect for an Antarctic setting. Again, we like to thank Zena Shrek for allowing us to use snippets of her song Ill Omens from her debut release, Bringing the Head of F.W. Murnau, as our episode's transition music. It really uh, underscored the what we were talking about. Her album can be found for sale at her Bandcamp page or consult the show notes. In episode two of HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we will continue exploring uh, Gail Tanaby's Lovecraft adaptation series by discussing The Nameless City, from his The Hound and Other Stories manga. That episode will post on Sunday, September 20th. For Scholars from the Edge of Time, on, on Thursday, September 24th at 6 p.m. PST, uh, our guests will be the cosplay couple Stephen Lake and Tiffany Caramel Lake. And if you haven't listened already, during our August episode, we interviewed New Zealand author Dan Roberts, a fantasy speculative fiction writer, We spent the first portion of the podcast exploring Dan's early writing journey, and then we discussed his series, The Children of Bane, in which he has written two volumes so far. We've also had an opportunity to chat about his Path of Raw series that Dan's been co-writing with Lee Murray. We'll have a link to that podcast in the show show notes as well. And on episode 32 of HP Lovecast, we'll discuss two short stories from Gavin Chappell's edited collection, Swords Against Cthulhu, published in 2015 by Rogue Planet Press. Pick up a copy of this anthology from Amazon and then listen to our podcast when it releases on Sunday, October 4th. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can also email us at hplovecast.gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. As always, thank you so much for listening, and please keep safe and healthy.